0: way to do this let me show you a better way
1: hi folks this is Jack spierko with another edition of the survival podcast as always one man's view of the changing world the changing times and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't Today is August the tenth, twenty twenty, and this is episode two thousand seven hundred eight of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a great one for you guys today. It is Monday, so it's time for a listener feedback show. I've got uh, leading off. I'm gonna have a great quote for you by Einstein. It's gonna fall in with at least one of the bullet points today for the show. Really, really well. I have a call-out for new expert council members. You think you might make a good member of the expert council, and there's going to be some turnover on the expert council. There's nothing wrong. It's just it's time to change some things, just in a good way, in a very positive way, and uh, that opens up some opportunities, and I'll give you more about that today. What about the right tool for various forms of chop and drop? I have a question for a recommendation for a scythe, and I'm going to tell you that I don't have a specific brand of scythe to recommend, um to me, that's kind of a very personal choice. The scythes are a unique tool. Uh, but I'm going to talk about the right tool for various forms of chop and drop. And is a scythe even what we're really looking for here? And when is modern technology the way to go? We'll, we'll talk about that today, too. Um, I have a new claimed COVID treatment. Uh, it's on a website called COVID Silver Bullet. And uh, it is by a doctor. And it's probably got some validity to it. But I don't really know. And I'm not recommending it. And I'm just going to put it out there. I know that I actually have some doctors in this audience, and I do have two doctors on the expert council, both of which are going nowhere, by the way. There, there's no doctor spot opening on expert council. Um, I sent it to them to take a look at today, and I haven't heard back yet, and I imagine that's because they're actually you know, doing the thing that is actually called checking into it. Um, but I just, I'm just, i going to make you aware of this just because I do think there's more than one way to skin a cat. That's a metaphor for you know, treat or cure or prevent a virus. Uh, next up today, more news on the homeschool front and the death of public education and more. I've got some new stuff for you on that. Um, working from home is about to go on a hyperdrive. That's actually going to backfeed into the homeschool thing. Um, and, and, and something that has not even been talked about yet when it comes to the work from home trend is the competition effect. What am I talking about? It'll make a lot of sense when I talk about it here in a second. Uh, state jujitsu 101. I've talked about state jiu-jitsu a lot. That's using the state's systems against itself. One thing we didn't talk to you guys a lot about over the years, and we probably should mention it at least once in a while, disputing your property tax assessment. One listener will tell you how it saved him $2,000 a year. That's, that's, that's real money in the real world. I mean, if for a politician... 2000 bucks is like a rounding error of how much they're going to steal from you tomorrow. Um, but uh, 2000 bucks for the average person, that's a lot of money that they don't get and you do. Uh, a question on what I worry about polycarbonate on, in the interior components of an X-caliber dehydrator. I'll tell you no right up front. I'll tell you why when we have a segment, and I'll tell you why people need to not worry so much about things. Um, I have a question on the coming real estate crash and how that might affect the building cost of new homes like so new build i want to build a house how is this going to affect me and probably not in the way you would think and it's it's going to be also as always it depends and i want to do some follow-up on universal basic income from last week the coming political shitstorm etc the show went so long last week the last show of the week or i'm sorry the thursday show on the mixed bag went so long that when i got to ubi there's some like really important things that i actually wanted to talk about that i didn't talk about like why I actually think it's going to happen in the next four to six years? Uh, maybe less, maybe a little bit more but why I actually think that it's in our future and and why I think it's really really bad and it's probably not for the reason many people would think it's not oh my, my bankruptcy of the country my country is bankrupt already. Somehow we function as a bankrupt nation. Um, there's, there's a lot there's a lot to it that I think could be really really awful. I did kind of cover that last week, so I'll only talk a little bit about it, but I want to talk about why I think it is going to happen, how it might look as it does. So with that, before we get into it, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is RidgeWallet.com. Uh, I've been carrying the Ridge Wallet now for over three years, and it actually be four years this December will be my fourth year anniversary of starting to carry the Ridge Wallet. I only remember that because it's so unusual for us to actually take on a new sponsor, and I just remember that you know that's when they came on board. I love the Ridge Wallet. It is the best thing that I've ever done to my EDC in all the years that I've done the Survival Podcast. Because pretty much the rest of my EDC has pretty much stayed the same way. It's about the only big change that I've made. It's going from a billfold, which is a lump on my ass cheek, to this small, compact, ID theft-preventing ID theft wallet in my front pocket. If you give it a try, you'll see why I love the Ridge Wallet. I think you will, too. Check them out today at RidgeWallet.com. Next up today, JM Bullion. Um, recently I did a lot of talk about cryptocurrency and, you know, I had to have, of course, some of the gold bugs and silver bugs come out of the woodwork and start screeching at me about tulip mania and other crap like that. Look, I don't say like put your money all in silver or all in gold or all in precious metals or all in cryptocurrency or all in U.S. dollars or all in stocks. My belief is that when you have the ability to bet on every horse in a race, in a way where whichever horse wins, so do you, and you don't bet on every horse in the race, that's kind of foolish. And I think that you know, hedging all the bets with about five to ten percent of your net wealth into silver and gold makes a lot of sense. And five percent, ten percent is my upper limit on this because I believe in diversity, and I think if you go too much all in on one thing, your diversity suffers. My personal number is about five percent, and and a lot of people don't think that's enough. That's it's plenty. It's plenty, especially if you're actually building your wealth and adjusting as you do. Um, But where would you get your silver and gold other than Jam Bullion? Let me tell you why that's where to go. They've been supporting the show for like eight years, so they support us. They give you a discount if you're an MSB member. I don't even know of another company you can get a discount on silver and gold from, really. On recurring purchases? Are you kidding me? Uh, All their orders ship free, and I can talk to the president if there's ever a problem, and I haven't had to talk to him because of a problem in like four years. Why would you go to anybody other than J.M. Only Oh, their pricing's better. Their pricing's better than Monix and AppMex and, and, and what have you. All these companies you see advertising on Fox News and stuff like that. Since J.M. advertises through small companies like mine, uh, they're, they're not having to inflate their prices to compensate for large marketing campaigns. Just Why would you pay more to a company that doesn't give a shit about you, that just sees you as a number, when you can deal with a company that supports what you believe in and gives you a discount, and gives you free shipping, and gives you better pricing. Just saying. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into this. Let's start off with a quote of the day today. This is by Einstein. He once said, intellectual growth should commence at birth and cease only at death. Um, Basically, you should be a lifetime learner. That's what that is. And here's the funny thing about it. Unless we take specific actions to prevent that from occurring, it's a natural state for humans. There's no point where humans are like, you know, I'm just bored, and I don't want to learn anything anymore at all, so I'm going to make sure that I don't learn anything today. What actually happens is we become convinced that education equals school, so we separate in our mind learning um, from life, because life should be learning. If life is learning, then you can't help but be a lifelong learner. But it can use a little help along the way. It can use a little help along the way. And what I mean by that is it's really, I think, if you live a life with any kind of variety in it, you know, unless you literally get up in the morning, make one cup of coffee, fill up a thermos with the rest of your coffee, go to work, punch a clock, do a job that's meaning, like menial as hell, like put these two pieces together on an assembly line all day long, take lunch, do it again, go home, and have no hobbies or no activities in your life other than you do that job, which that sounds pretty miserable to me. I don't understand how you go a day or especially a week without learning something new. But doesn't it behoove you to say, I'm going to learn some things this week, like to pick a book to read this week or a podcast to listen to or a subject to research and just do that every day, a little bit every day, just a tiny bit every day. And then what you're doing is you are making the most of your dash because this is the thing about true true growth and development of the intellect. Unlike school, which is designed to cause you to remember something long enough to regurgitate it and and repeat it, true intellectual growth is actually developing the mind over time. And then that means that every day, your ability to learn the next day actually goes up because you have more information to base your new information on. Which actually means... In spite of what scientists say, you actually can raise a person's IQ over time. I know they've told you that's not possible, but I'm telling you that they're wrong. Most people don't raise their IQ over time. That's where this conclusion comes from. But the belief that it's not possible, that is like what you tell people when you want to limit their growth and you want to typecast them into some place and basically have a a modern form of a caste system. That it's nonsensical because the entire point of IQ is what is your ability to learn? Well, you tell me that if you continuously learn and you actually remember what you've learned and you actually build on the skill set of being able to take old information and new information and combine them to extrapolate new ideas, that's not the very definition of developing your IQ. So you can develop your IQ and you should develop your IQ and you practice that through intellectual growth commencing at birth and ceasing only at death. With that, let's kind of dig into it and start off with that in mind. I really love the expert council. It's like, of all the ideas that I've had since I started the Survival Podcast, it's the best idea that I've ever had. Over the past few months, though, I have had several council members just kind of not answer questions. And I've also had several expert council members that maybe they already started that, maybe they didn't, but one way or another, we're just not getting questions for them anymore. And I think that's understandable. We have some of our expert council members that are great, but they've been here four or five years. So that means if they've answered a question every third week, you know, every other week, they've answered something like, what would it be, like 100 to 150 questions for you guys now, some of them? and if they're in one kind of narrow niche maybe we just you know come on and if then if they start to not respond it's like i used to i have told the council this many times right when i was in the army they used to say men if you want mail send mail and it's the days before internet and email and and what have you and if you were deployed somewhere you know a, a phone call home might be 5 or 6 dollars a minute sometimes depending on where you were deployed so the chief way that we communicated with our family was through mail and the people that got got almost no mail were the ones that never sent any. And the more you send, the more you get back. So with some council members, I've tried to explain, like, if you don't answer questions regularly, people have lives and they forget about you and they ask questions to the ones that are there. So I think that's that's hit us, too. So I have... I, I don't have, like... It's not like half the council's leaving, but I'm going to make some cuts. I'm going to make some cuts. And one council member has decided, look, I just come up with some other stuff to do and I'm going to step aside. And that gives us the opportunity to maybe replace, but maybe just add new people with new things and new topics. So I'm interested in hearing from anybody. I want to know what kind of questions you would be willing to ask or answer. I want to know kind of why you, you know, what makes you qualified in that way. And if you have any sort of a business or online presence, I want to know what that is too. And I'm not saying you have to have one in order to be on the council. I prefer it. And I'll tell you why I prefer it. It's easy to say, yeah, I'll answer two questions a month. And it's easy to say, that's a lot of work two or three months into it. And it's a real opportunity. I mean, it's an opportunity to every other week be on the air and be heard by over 200,000 people. A person that has a presence that they're trying to build, it should matter to them more. So it's not that they would be better at it. It's just that it might be more motivating. So I will consider anybody. But, I mean, that would be the ideal is you have something unique to bring to the table you are willing to commit to getting me at least two segments a month. And let me explain something that I expect from my council members. If you don't happen to have a question this week and you haven't answered one in a week, come up with something. I expect you to be able to kind of come up with an idea, a segment, a, a, a possibility, a potential of something that we can you know, cover. Um, and, and if you'll do that, and, and my segments need to run from five to eight minutes... That's my time limit. That I anything less than five, you know, if it's four and a half, it is what it is. But and sometimes a question really is a short answer question. But you know, about a five minutes content to, to about eight minutes of content that lets me run six segments a week, uh, maybe seven depending on the length, and and have a nice variety show. So if you'd like to be considered for the expert council, put TSPC expert in the subject line. Send me the email. And give me your background and tell me what you would like to be considered for. And what I will probably do for most of you, if I think this might work, this might work, then I'll probably make a question for you. And answering that question will kind of be your audition. Because it's not something you just say, oh, okay, sure. That's that's not how this is going to work. Because, it, again, it is a, it's a tremendous opportunity. So there you go. That's available uh, for those that want to uh, not throw your hat in the ring, I guess is the way to put it. So next up, Josh says, what scythe would you recommend for chopping and dropping cover crops? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Um, let's, let's try to look at this from a standpoint of let's pick the right tool instead of the right brand of tool for the right job. So chop and drop can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. You did use the term cover crops. So that tells me at least we're in the right, the right room here. Right? We're, we're not only in the right house, we're in the right room. And what I mean by that is there are things that you should be cutting with a scythe if everything else lines up perfectly for a scythe to be the right tool for the right job. And there are things that you should not be cutting with a scythe. And what you should not be cutting with a scythe is anything that really is a, a woody perennial or a fairly woody annual. So a scythe is for mowing. And, and pretty much, I'm not saying there's not some brush sides and stuff that are a little more vigorous, or a little more uh, beefy and stouty, but really, if you wouldn't cut it with a lawnmower, you probably shouldn't be cutting it with a scythe. Now, I don't think most people would go into you know a two-and-a-half-foot-high grain field with a lawnmower, but that is a capacity issue. It's not a cutting issue. So what I'm talking about is the, 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 the frond of the grass or the stem should be something that you wouldn't hesitate to cut with a lawnmower or a lawn tractor. That's what scythes are for. The next thing is you shouldn't be using a scythe in a place where it's highly likely that you're going to hit something with it like a tree stump or a rock unless there's a compelling reason. Like, I have a place in the back corner of my property that we might clean up this, this workshop coming up in uh, in November. Oh, by the way, TSP Workshop 2020, it will happen, COVID or no COVID. Uh, it's going to be in November. It will be November 11 through 15. November 11 through 15 will be when we're doing that workshop. Just, just We might clean that area up. I have used my scythe to kind of clean out that area because there's so many rocks and things back in there that if I hit it with a lawnmower, I'm going to take it out. But I'm really, really careful when I do that, and it's not an ideal tool. The scythe was made to go through a great big field before there were mowers and reapers and things like that, and and combines and whatever, and and mow. That's what it's for. So you should be using a scythe for chop and drop when you have a relatively open space, where you're cutting something consider, something similar to an annual grass or other annual cover crop, and once you cut it, you just kind of want it to lay there. If you're doing it for chop and drop, if you're doing it for harvest or something, it's totally different, not what we're covering today. If we're talking about a food forest, and you have, let's say you're throwing down a cover crop every year until your forest gets established, or you've done your first establishment planting of your food forest, and you're gonna you're gonna chop and drop your cover crop once. Is a scythe right? Maybe. Generally, we plant a food forest pretty thick, right? We plant it pretty thick with trees. So, moving a scythe in and around trees is not the easiest thing to do. And I, I want to explain why I'm so anti scythe in a place where you can hit a tree stump, a rock, a heavy woody thing. You know, just one stick, one stem that's kind of thick. A scythe blade is different than a knife blade or a hatchet blade or just about any other blade that you will ever work with. A scythe blade is basically metal that you is peened, so it's hit with a hammer against an anvil, and this is something you need to learn to do to maintain your scythe. And you're basically moving the metal with impact out to the edge, and then you maintain that edge with a whetstone. So you get a little scabbard, you put a little water in it, you keep that whetstone, and every so many, you know, so often while you're cutting with it, you kind of go over it with that whetstone to keep that edge, but every so often you need to sit down and peen that edge out. And what you're doing is you're actually just, you're just drawing that metal out so it's incredibly thin, and that's what makes it so sharp. A scythe should not require heavy impact to cut. You should just basically move it across the grass, and the grass should fall over if it's sharp enough. Because of the way that blade is, You hit a stick, you know, half the diameter of your pinky that's woody, and it'll put a ding right in that. Now, you can peen it out, but, like, this isn't something you want to regularly happen. You hit a rock, the trunk of a tree, a stump, I mean, it'll jack that blade up hard to the point where it's a lot of work to get it back to where it does what it's supposed to do. So I don't like it in those obstructed environments. So what do I like? Well, let's say that we were going to go in between trees. We do have enough space to do it without beating the trees up. A string trimmer is fantastic, with one caveat, with a string trimmer. If you have really tall cover crops, they can wrap around the string trimmer and actually jam it up. What I do in those situations is instead of going low with the string trimmer and make sure you're wearing glasses and protective gear and all, kind of come down from the top and kind of bring it down, and that way you can kind of cut as you go. That's a great way to go. So a string trimmer is actually a great tool for chop and drop. A rice knife which is a tool that I covered last week which is basically a hand sickle or a hand sight they're called but it's serrated. If you don't have a lot to do it's a fantastic tool because you can get very precise and so when you use a hand sickle like this you hold what you're cutting and then you go in at the height that you want to cut and you use a sawing motion to cut. This gives you tons of precision you're not going to cut into the trunks of your young trees and all. So in a situation where you're doing a small food forest it might make a lot of sense to go through the big openings with a string trimmer or a scythe if that works for you depending on you know if you've got berms again a scythe is designed to 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 mow so if you're on the side of a hill it's pretty easy to hold an angle but when you have a short berm it's a little more work to be able to do it so maybe a scythe maybe a string trimmer right let's go through and take out the big stuff and then when we have to get close to our plants let's go back through with that that hand sickle, but chop and drop, so you say cover crops, but chop and drop, a lot of time what we're doing is we're pruning trees and things like that, so another tool that's really great is just a small pair of hand pruners, so we're taking and we're pruning our trees, and then we're using those pruners we can cut into even smaller pieces, now if we're trying to do a three quarter acre food forest with a set of hand pruners, that's going to get old fast, but even if we're doing that, if we're going out 10 minutes every day and we're slowly working our way through even a fairly sizable food forest, something like a rice knife and a good pair of pruners may be all that you need. If you're doing a garden, you have a garden bed, and what you mean by chop and drop for that is you're going to grow a wheat or an oat or maybe even uh, daikon radish or some sort of winter pea, and you're going to grow that, and then... In spring, when you plant, you're just going to chop and drop it right where it is, a nice, open, flat garden. A scythe is a great tool for that. It's a fantastic tool for that, and it will be incredibly fast. But I would submit to you, unless you have a really big garden, a really big garden, um, or have another use for the scythe, it's probably not the best investment. Scythes, good scythes are expensive. They really are. I mean, a couple hundred bucks. And they take some time to learn how to use and skill to learn how to maintain. If you have four, four by eight garden beds that you're going to be chopping and dropping, use a sharp hoe. Just get, you can get a, I'm talking like a cheap $10 to $20 hoe, not that kind of hoe, a garden hoe, get your mind out of the gutter, from like Home Depot or Lowe's. You can sharpen it with a grinder if you want to, or just a good file. And then you just drag it across the bottom because you're not asking that much out of it. Or you can actually kind of chop, chop, chop up with a hoe. Um, that would be another option. There's I don't know what you call these things, but there's another tool. I haven't seen a lot of them lately. But when I was a kid, I used to use one all the time. We called it a swisher, and it basically looked like a garden. Uh, it looked like a uh, golf club, except the bottom was a long flat thing with with an edge on both sides of it. You swish, swish, swish. I mean, for a garden, that's everything you need and more. Um, There's a lot of different shapes of hose that you can get that are really good for the garden level. Okay, I would also submit to you, when it comes to gardening with a cover crop, especially like a straw or something like that, you may not even want to cut it. Well, that's crazy talk. You can roll it or flatten it some way so that all we're doing is laying it flat like a tatami mat, right, tatami mat, With weight, So you come from both ends and fold your ends down, and then you can do the center however you want so that it stops growing because I've folded the stem over and I've I've pushed it flat to the ground. Now, if you've grown like a wheat, triticale, a rye, or something like that, then you might want to use a rice knife, hand sickle, what have you, and take the heads off like we talked about last week. Then you can go through your scythe or your sickle uh, or your swisher or your hoe, Or you can just flatten it. But you don't want to lay the grain heads on the ground or you're going to start growing more and then you're going to out-compete your garden produce. So I think this has a lot to do. Think about the area you're doing it, why you're doing it, what you're trying to accomplish. But a scythe, I've always said that a scythe is about mowing. So if you wouldn't mow it, now there might be things like maybe you don't want to put your lawnmower inside your garden bed and lift it up in there or something where a scythe makes sense. But but I'm talking about the material. If the material doesn't make sense to mow with a mower of some sort, it probably doesn't make sense for using with a scythe. So I hope that helps. If if I'm missing anything or you have some clarifications or anybody has any questions about this type of thinking, let me know, and we will do it again in the future. I also want to tell you, I do have a new tool um, to kind of replace a rice knife and maybe adjunct a rice knife. I'm not sure exactly how to describe it, but it basically is a rice knife that folds up like a giant folding knife. Fits right in a pocket of a pair of cargo shorts really, really comfortably. Uh, They're made in Turkey. They are basically a serrated hand sickle that folds up like a folding knife. I don't even really know what they're called. What it's called on uh, on Amazon's description is a hand scythe. It is not a hand scythe. It is not for mowing. It is for cutting. It is serrated. I love it. I bought one last week when I ran the rice knife. Somebody told me about it. I wanted to use it over the weekend so that I had practical experience with it before I recommended it to you guys. I am going to definitely come out with it probably tomorrow as an item of the day. I do have a link to it in today's show notes. Um, These were used, they are still used heavily in Turkey for pruning like grapevines and berry bushes and stuff like that. They work fantastic. Uh, I was cutting today some fairly large lambs quarter down with it, fairly woody, sticky lambs quarter that I would not use my scythe on. Had no problem getting through it in one or two saws. Um, love it. More will come on it tomorrow. But what I like is you can fold it up and take it with you and not have it kind of sticking and jutting out or trying to make a sheath for it or something like that. And Therefore, you don't leave it laying in your garden bed to rust you. Keep it with you. So this next one came in from Jake. Jake sends me some really good stuff sometimes, and uh, this one might be. I don't know. I want to be very clear. I'm putting this out for informational purposes only. Uh, the website is called COVIDSilverBullet.com. The man claims to have a valid treatment for COVID. Um, nothing about it, it looks dangerous or anything. I don't actually know a lot about um one of the primary things that are used in it, and I'm probably even gonna say this wrong, uh, but it's buds, but um and I don't know if that is actually a prescription or something that you can just get. I know almost no more than what I've told you so far about this. In his case study, he claims to have treated hundreds of people with this with a 100% success rate. I'm always skeptical of that, but I am more skeptical of the establishment that says things don't work. We all, we all know the complete bullshit with which the establishment has treated hydroxychloroquine trying to make you think that something that people have taken for 70 years is all of a sudden dangerous and should only be used in a hospital. It is the most asinine thing that I've ever heard in my life, and because of that, I'm open to anything being possibly useful. So I don't know much about this, but I would ask this of the audience. 100%, 100%, please understand, I am not endorsing this. I can't be more clear about that. I'm not endorsing this. I don't have a flipping idea of this. if this doctor, his name is Dr. Richard Bartlett, is a genius, just a really good doctor that found something, or a complete bozo. I don't know. But those of you that do have medical backgrounds and that can take on doing things like reading case studies and things like that, have a look at this and send me your opinion. I've already asked Doc Bones and Dr. Barry to take a look at it for me, but I welcome anybody looking into this. I'm basically crowdsourcing something that came to me that I have no way to validate. I have no way to verify the man's claims. I don't know. Here's my thing. When I look at something like this, I have to admit what I don't know, and I'm hoping that that drives home what I do know when I when I give you a much stronger recommendation. Recently, I listened to as much as I could have without s- just screaming, yelling, and beating myself to death with a ball-peen hammer uh, of a podcast by uh, Congressman Dan Crenshaw with a doctor from, um, from, from Houston. Uh, and when they got to the hydroxychloroquine uh, component of the, of the uh, discussion, which is when I, I really couldn't take it anymore, um, the doctor said something that I found just absolutely fen- uh, just ridiculous. And Because what he said was, when you are deciding to use something as a treatment for an illness, you have to have a reason that you're doing it. You don't just go, oh, we have this thing, so why don't we try it and see if it works. Now, just let his stupidity go. My point is, well, there's all kinds of reasons for why hydroxychloroquine would be a good antiviral. Like, it's been used as an antiviral for other viruses in the past. Um, it is a known ionophore for zinc. We know the effect of zinc on mRNA viruses, et cetera, right? So... I've gone into this subject with um, pandemics and viruses for 12 years deeply now. When COVID started, the reason I was so quick to say, we need to be looking at hydroxychloroquine here, and immediately instead of saying, I think we do, I said, I know we do because doctors started saying it too and using it too. I understand well... The medical rational reason, the medical rationale and the reasoning behind hydroxychloroquine for the treatment of a virus like COVID. It makes perfect sense to me. I know enough about how the drug acts, I know enough about its safety, I know what it does, and I know why. Three primary mechanisms I can explain it as well as any doctor, I believe. That doesn't mean there's not doctors that don't know more than me, but as far as explaining it to a person, I can explain it. I don't know this other stuff, I don't know it from Adam. And I don't claim to. But I'd like your help with Learning more about it, and uh, I try to bring things to you when I don't know too, because I think if you sound like you always know, then there's no reason to believe you. I, I really do. I think like a person that can't admit I don't know this thing is really a person I won't rely on for anything. You know, I mean, it's kind of like totally different way. But conspiracy theorists, when somebody starts telling me about a conspiracy, right? My first thing is, can we just stop for a second so I know what I'm dealing with? Tell me too well-known conspiracy theories that you think are bunk, that you just think are just stupid and they have nothing to them. If that person can't give me one, let alone two, I don't want to hear, even if what they're saying, I'm done. I'll get a different source for this. Right? Um, And I don't even have to agree with you about the ones that are bunk being bunk. The fact that you are able to look and say, hey, I don't believe every single thing that's a conspiracy theory because I don't either, and I think that you have to be pretty batshit crazy to believe all of them, right? So unless you think a couple are not worthy of really digging into, or at least they're wrong, then I just assume you're a person that will believe any conspiracy theory, so whatever you're going to say next doesn't matter to me. I feel the same way about a source of information. If I can't ask a person a question and ever get an I'm not sure as an answer, I don't trust them, because I believe they're a person talking out of their ass, and I'm Trying to be clear that sometimes I don't know and that it's important that we step up and say when we don't know. So I don't know anything about this other than what I gave you. Again, it's called COVID, COVIDSilverbullet.com. I welcome anybody with the right medical and, and and pharmaceutical background to take a look at it and tell me if it's even plausible and let me know what you think about it. All right, next up today from Garrison. Garrison said, I just saw a segment on Today, that's a TV show for those of us who don't really watch TV anymore, uh, Life Watches some morning, saying that 30 to 40% of teachers are considering retiring early in lieu of going back to teach during COVID. Could this whole political fight and propaganda campaign about schools opening be a giant golden parachute program to force out all the old teachers and not replace them? That could give the system some life, helping them navigate the coming shift, extinction event with less staffing, and kind of play out on the string, Uh, Max and St. Louis. This is interesting, and I do think that a, as painless as possible, bloodletting is part of the plan right now. I think the only reason the teachers' unions would convince the teachers that it's in the teachers' best interest to not go back in the fall, which is almost now in some areas, um, is because this is the plan in some way, shape, or form, because... If you, if you use – and this, is, this also makes me wonder, like, how much common sense does the average teacher have? Honestly. Honestly. I, I know they're scared of COVID or whatever, but honestly. Because if you think that you're not going to see massive layoffs from homeschool and, and automation and, every, and and even virtual school, if you don't think there's going to be massive teacher layoffs right now, I question your capacity to be able to teach. I don't think you're smart enough to be a teacher, really. And if you don't then make the connection to the longer we keep the kids home, the more of that is going to be the case, you really aren't qualified to be a teacher. And if you can't add those two things together and realize, hey, hey, wait a minute, that could be me, then I really, really, really don't think you're qualified to be a teacher. And I'm starting to realize how many people are not qualified to be teachers. But part of this is teachers' unions and groups and associations have become so dominant in the life of the, of the sector that a lot of teachers, just whatever they're told by that authority, because it's the whole school system is designed to teach obedience to authority. So the people teaching it have it. Teachers are obedient to their authority. And don't say you're not if you're a teacher, because then you wouldn't be teaching the bullshit that they have you teach. You, and you wouldn't be, well, if I try to change it, they'll fire me. Well, see, so you are obedient to authority. You have a reason for obedience to authority, but you have it. And once you condition an organism a certain way for a certain period of time, it's, it's called training. There's teaching and there's training. Teaching means that I've empowered you with knowledge so you can make a decision. That's teaching you. Training is to condition an organism so that it cannot perform any differently than I want it to in any given situation. A Pavlovian response. When we were trained in the army, some of the things we were trained to, we were trained to that level, even though other things that we were taught, because the training would save your life. We were trained, for instance, in the event of an explosion to hit the dirt. Various different types of explosions, different situations, but basically to drop immediately to the ground. To the point where when they set off a simunition... I mean, you were on the ground. You didn't. The first time it happened where it was ins, totally instinctual, it shocked you. That was conditioning of an organism to the point where it cannot behave any differently. I can train a slime mold to grow up a tree. I can't teach a slime mold. And a lot of what's being done in education is training versus teaching. And teachers have been trained to obey... The principal, the administrators, the teachers' unions, etc. And you can say you're not, but I'm sorry. What you do every day shows me that that's the case. So I'm not saying every teacher's like, I don't want us to go back to school. I'm saying a shitload of teachers have bought into this idea, let's not go back. You're, right now, if you're a teacher doing this and you're pushing this narrative, you've made a noose, you've put it around your neck, You've tied it to the branch of a tree in your backyard to the point where you have to stand on your tiptoes and you have a garden hose in your hand and you're watering the tree. And the only thing that's going to determine how long it takes before your neck is strung up and you strangle yourself to death is the speed at which your tree grows. Some of you are watering a willow or a locust tree or something like that. Uh, and some of you are watering an oak, a very slow-growing tree, and maybe you have a long time. But you're, you're watering the tree that the rope is tied to your neck with and wondering why it's, gee, this is getting uncomfortable. And I can think of no reason for the people that are pushing that on you, right, if you're a teacher, other than let's call out the weak and the old COVID is killing the dying, and I don't mean people, except in this case it is people, but it's not really people, it's their jobs. The education system is bloated and overloaded and needs to be pared down massively. COVID and the resulting homeschool revolution has made it to where you don't get to pick and choose about when anymore. You're going to have to do it now. And I'm telling you, some of you teachers, I get emails from you, you're can. you just in denial. I'm telling you right now, I would bet about twenty percent of public education teachers will not have a job by twenty twenty one. There's three million of them. Do that common core math. This is coming now and, and and everything being done by the left. And the education sector is run by the left. And if you say that's not true, you're too stupid to be a teacher. I'm a teacher and I'm a conservative then you should know better than anybody else, you freaking pea-brain, if you're defending that, that you're wrong. I didn't say all teachers were leftists. I said the education system is run by the left. It is. And the left is running it into the ground. And guess who's trying to fix it? Who's trying to save it? The right. The conservatives. The people that for years have said, the left is indoctrinating our children with the education system and they're programming our children's brains. They're trying to save it and the left that runs it is trying to kill it. It's like an episode of The Twilight Zone. Imagine, if you will, a world in which—I mean, that's—that's that's what I'm seeing play out. But yeah, I really do. I think this is a big giant lice comb. You know, somebody gets lice, you wash their hair with lice stuff, and then you run a comb through it and pull the lice out. Are you're, you're offended by that? I'm sorry. There are people in that set, and. and the thing is, early retirement, golden parachute. Really? See, the problem with that is, teachers are not federal employees. They're state employees, state, county, etc. Um, and it's all different. I mean, some of the retirement programs that places like Chicago have are ridiculous for teachers. Like you're boohoo crying bullshit. I don't want to hear it about how hard your life is if you're a teacher in Chicago. I mean, my God, you have better retirement than most federal government employees. A teacher in Texas, they basically have a 4013B, which is like a 401k for teachers. They don't really have a pension and all this. Like so if they get laid off, it would be no different than if you worked for Joe Blow's tires and had a 401k you contributed to your whole life. You know, you're not walking away with medical benefits for the rest of your life like in some districts where teachers have those. So like that's all pieces, parts everywhere. The thing is, the places with the biggest problem are the ones that have those sweetheart deals for teachers and many other government employees. I'm not letting anybody off the hook here. We're just having to be talking about teachers right now. So then what does that look like? What does that look like when a whole shitload of New York teachers get laid off or Illinois teachers get laid off or they have these sweetheart deals and and pensions still in place? You can't pay it all. See, the thing is, in some – not all places, but in some places – When a teacher retires, they don't actually cost a lot less than they do when they're working. I'm serious. I know some of you, "Ah, my teachers are heroes, whatever. I'm talking about math. Math is a fact, and facts, friends, do not have feelings. So yeah, but how is that going to look? I don't know. What I do know is this. Every single day that children are not in the physical schools the number of children who will never ever 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 never infinity ever go to one ever again grows and there's been some interesting things that came out I told you guys about three weeks ago in an article that I expected there to be about 10 million actually 5 to 15 million uh, new homeschoolers this year I just put out on my YouTube channel and on Facebook A segment from Fox News, big-time media, hey, we're estimating it's about 10 million. Gulp. 10 million. There's only 55 million uh, secondary and post-secondary students in the country. 10 million. 10 million is 20%, folks. And those aren't virtual schoolers. Those are, we are done, we are out, here's the middle finger, buh-bye. This is going so fast, so hard, and the left is killing themselves. And I think Garrison's on to something. I think Garrison has hit it perfectly. The only reason that these academics would do this is they want to gut their own system because they know it's falling apart. Here's the miscalculation problem, though. A lot of the people that are driving that decision, they think that they're all nice and protected because they're not classroom teachers. They're administrators. They're union presidents. They're blah, 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 blah. Some of them will survive. I mean, they are survivors. In the iron law of bureaucracy, they're the ones that determine the promotions and, and set the rules and all that. But you can't get rid of, I don't know, 300,000, 600,000 teachers? That's the number we're looking at. Hello? Is that, is that scary? Are you, are you getting it yet? 600,000 public school teachers unemployed by the end of next year. Most of them unemployed by Christmas. Hello? Got it yet? Okay, you can't get rid of that much of the, the staff and justify the overhead of administrators. They can try for a while, but their heads are going to roll too. There were already people saying things like, there was some bitch from Harvard saying, maybe that we should make homeschool illegal to save the system. I'm telling you, good luck with that. You want to see a, you want to see a, an angry armed revolution? You go do that shit in this country. This is going to be drug kicking and screaming against its will, like a tantrum having child into reality for for this entire sector. And if you're a teacher and you're going to get hurt by it. I feel bad for you in some ways. And the other thing, the other side of this, though, if you listen to this show, how long have I been telling you to get your shit together if you're in that sector? Because you're going to get punched in the balls. Only about five years. So you can say this all came really fast because of COVID, but not if you're a listener to this show. I've been begging you to get your shit together. And, uh, man, it's... And I'll tell you what, my, my grandson just started his homeschooling today, first day back. And he did a week's worth of social studies in a couple hours. And he also knocked out courses in math and engineering. Yeah, he's in fourth grade. Math and engineering. Engineering is an elective. He's a homeschool kid, totally divorced from the system. He's never going back. It's it's here. Um on top of that, and this is um, this is going to drive what we just talked about even faster. There's a story out on CNBC. I won't read it to you, but um, tech companies are abandoning offices. So Google's saying right now, you can just, if you're working from home now, you can just plan on working from home until 2021. <laughs> you know what that means? Between now and 2021, if we determine that you don't, like, work well enough independently to keep working at home, we're going to fire you. A company called Adalassin, I think is how you pronounce it, never heard of them, but they have 5,000 employees. So this is not a small company. Has just said that everybody working from home will be working from home indefinitely. We're done. Like this was, Basically what they said is, this is working way too good. We're not having problems. We're not having productivity issues. If we have somebody that slacks off or whatever and doesn't do their job, we just fire them anyway. It becomes abundantly obvious who sucks now because you can tell if they're logged in, if they're doing their job or whatever. And so their salaried employees, they're saying that they're going to from now on measure outcomes rather than hours. They don't even care how much work you, how, how often you work, only that you work and all your responsibilities are met. Okay, so this is, this is earth shattering. Number one, this is going to contribute to the real estate crisis, and this is going to be the trend I haven't discussed yet. One of the, one of, I have four mega trends. Remember that are coming a collapse in commercial real estate. So that's that's another trend. That'll be an article coming out maybe this week if not next week the collapse of the commercial real estate market. And this is a big part of why. Because why would I pay for all this commercial office space and all the crap that goes with it, and all the OSHA requirements and all the other bullshit when I can send all my people home, save money and get better output out of them? Okay, now let's say I'm, I'm Joe and Susan and Joe and Susan have always wanted to homeschool Johnny and Susie, right? Little, little Joey and Susie, right? Joey Jr. and Susie Jr. So... Joe and Susan, all of a sudden, one of them is working for a company that says, Hey, Joe, yeah, just stay home. Why do I need 24 7, you know, uh, taxpayer funded monopoly on babysitting anymore? Because that's the number one objection you get from people. When you push back on all this, My socialization, all this other crybaby bullshit that people come up with of why kids need to go to school, yeah, they need socialization from school. Get out of here. Get out. What do they do all summer long? That's when they actually have the most socialization. Don't give me your bullshit. When you really push people, it comes down to state provided babysitting. Okay, well now Joe is at home. Well, especially once the kids are past like kindergarten-ish. Not only can they stay home and do their work and Joe can do his work while Joe Jr. and Susie Jr. do their work, but it actually makes it easier for, for, for dad if the kids are in school. I've already had this conversation with my son and, and my daughter-in-law. They're like, well, this is a big commitment. I was like, we actually want to get school started. Because if he comes over here and he has things to be doing, and there's a, a, a coursework and a, a, you know something for him to be doing, it gives us time to do our thing. We don't have to see to his needs at all. I wouldn't say at all. We don't have to see to his needs as much. And that's why we're trying, we're already kind of pushing our granddaughter at, at four into kind of a pre-K mode where she's going to have her own school stuff to do. Right? Puts her ahead, but it also engages. So if I can get my kids to the point where the basics of what they need, they can see to, like they can make a peanut butter sandwich, and they can do their thing, and they can come ask me when they need something, and I'm working for a company that's judging my output, not my hours, why would I send my kids to school anymore? Plus, I've had the test drive. Now, here's the thing people don't realize yet, how common this is going to become. When these big companies like Google, like Atlassian, et cetera, start doing this, um, then everybody starts doing it. And then what happens is if I want you to work for me, I say, I want you to come work for me. He said, "Well, what do you need me to do?" And I say, "I got this job for you to do, and it's some job that you could do from home. It's a programming job, whatever. It's customer service. There's, you know, I would say sixty to seventy percent of jobs can be done from home most of the time or often. There's there, there are jobs like if your job is to weld shit in a welding shop, then you gotta go to work. If you're a pipe fitter, you gotta go to work. You can't fit pipes from home. But I can design." the distribution system for piping from home see how it works like most jobs when i say most more than 50% that would be most 51% is most can be done from home so now i want you to come work for me and it's a job that's in that 51 plus percentile it can be done from home and you and i i said to you well yeah here's how much it pays whatever and you have you're good you don't suck so you have another opportunity And I say, well, what are they willing to pay you? And you say, well, they're willing to pay me sixty-five. And I say, you know what? I'll give you seventy. Assuming that, like, we're both comparable employers, that five grand might win you over. But what happens when you say, yeah, they said I can work from home? And I say, you know, I don't do that. I like to be able to supervise my employees, and I need you to be in the office every day. Guess what's going to happen? You, the good employee that I wanted to woo, is going to go work for my competitor. And the next time somebody's sitting in front of me that says, you know, you know, ABC widgets, basically sprockets, right, is offering me 65 grand and work from home, then as Cogswell Cogs, I'm going to say to you, how about sixty dollars and work from home? The competition effect, no one's talking about it yet. As this becomes more prominent, you're going to see this go into hyperdrive working from home. And then that's going to magnify all the other effects. The migration out of the cities, the migration out of the educational system, the migration to different options for post-secondary education, i.e. college. It's all, this was already happening like I've been saying. I don't know how long I've been saying it, but it's been a long time. At least five years I've been on this. And I've said, 2020 to 2030 is the time. I said that back in 2015. I guarantee you, if you go back and listen to old shows, I said that in 2015, probably 2014, that I called this decade five, six years ago. But what just happened was, there's a nice little fire. Let's put it out with this five gallons of kerosene. Oh, shit, kerosene doesn't put out fire. That's what's going on right now. And it's in every sector that was already coming. All right, next up, Jimmy says, Jack, all your talk on state jujitsu made me think of one I've done with property taxes. I don't think you've covered it. You can appeal your property tax assessment. I'm sure it varies from state to state, but it was pretty here easy here in New Jersey. It took a few hours, but I saved myself $2,000 a year. You have just to dissect all their data and point out where they're wrong. Thanks for all you do, Jimmy. This is a great thing, and everybody should do it, whenever you're especially whenever your property taxes go up. It's one thing where your property taxes are, unless they already went up. But usually, what happens when you buy a house? So I come in and I buy this house, and, and this house is assessed at like 160 because it's an old house, and the person in here has been here a long time, and it's assessed at 160 right now this second, and I pay 210,000 for it. Well, next year I'm paying 210 for property taxes. That's that's where they're going to base my tax assessment. Why? Well, your house just you just bought it for that much. So contesting that is almost impossible. You can't say it's not worth what was paid for it. So that forms a baseline. Now, if the market collapses, which it might, you might be able to contest it and and go try, definitely. What then happens is every year or so many years, depending on your state and their thing, you'll get a new thing from your tax assessor that says, this is our current assessment of your taxes. And generally, almost inevitably, it will go up. Some states have limits to how much it can go up and how frequently. And usually, magically, whatever that number is for a minimum that they're allowed to do to you, it will be exactly that. This can be real or the limit could have kicked in. So here's two totally different examples. When we lived down in Mansfield, the house I had when we when I first started doing Survival Podcast 12 years ago. we have been in there a few years. They did this to me. They jacked up the value of that house like $30,000. All I did was pull comparables go down and file a dispute with the tax office and basically say, listen, if you can find somebody to will pay what you say my house is worth, they bought a house because I'll sell it tomorrow. And I won that dispute. And I actually got it put back to exactly where it was, which is unusual. Recently, they did it here for the house that I'm in now. And when we disputed it, they wouldn't budge. Basically, the market has gone so well here that the, the state-imposed limit on how much they can increase it by per term kept it from going higher. So even though I'm not happy about it, I don't have... So it all depends on whether or not you'll be able to successfully dispute it. I do want to like start talking more about the concept of what is your time worth from this standpoint, though. So think about this. Jimmy spent two hours to save himself $2,000 this year. So Jimmy made $1,000 an hour by fighting the state. So not only did he get to use state jiu-jitsu, which always is his own reward, not only did he take away money from the state to be used in a manner that he doesn't want his money used, I guarantee you, there's something your state does with your money that you find absolutely despicable, that you just find reprehensible, so why let them do it? And not only does he have the money now in his hands, so he can further his liberty versus them taking more liberty. Beyond all that, just in a raw Calculation Jimmy made a thousand dollars an hour. And I want you to think about how many people, if you said I'll pay you a thousand dollars an hour to run naked up and down the street until you get arrested, covered in oil, and when the cops arrest you, start squealing like a pig and make it as hard on them as possible, would do it. Really? And I'd pay you a two hour minimum if they get you in the first five minutes, but you've got to try. Wee! Wee! I mean, that's what they would do it. They would do it. Or something equally stupid. Like, I'll pay you $1,000 an hour to roll around in stinky mud nonstop for the next two hours. Splash mud. Right? I mean, think about the things people will do for $1,000 an hour. Now, think about the fact that so many people won't learn the state system and fill out some paperwork for $1,000 an hour. Now, let's think about another side of this if that contestation has a period of about 4 years before the next assessment which is fairly average for states before they pull it back it's not $2000 it's 8 and even when they pull it forward again you've reset and if there's any limit on the percent of increase you've reset that so over 10 years it could be 20,000 bucks From two hours of work. That's ten grand an hour. Is that going to work for everybody? No. I mean, the property taxes I pay as high as they are. That ain't happening here. That's not happening here. Like I know I know why this is possible. Two grand in a year from one one uh, dispute. I have a friend that lived in New Jersey. They had a nice three bedroom house. It wasn't a mansion, and it but it was nice. And it was in a nice neighborhood. They were paying 16 grand a year in property tax, and that was 30 years ago. So it's not going to be the same everywhere, but what if it's 500 bucks? What if you cut your property tax is $500? That's $500 you didn't have, and it's $500 I didn't get. And if it takes you five hours, it's still $100 an hour. That's more than, than you probably make working. So isn't your, and I wonder how many things, if we looked at it that way, this many hours of work, Results in this much less money leaving, and therefore it's equivalent to this level of income. But since it's a, a reduction in out, it's not taxed. So not only did I keep you from taxing me, I did it in a way where you don't get to tax it. So if I go out and I do two hours worth of work, and it's not under the table, it's not cryptocurrency, or it's not agorism, right? It's straight up like Jack hires me for some stupid reason, like to come polish, um, I don't know, polish his the, the, the scythe blades. Uh, for 2000 bucks, and you come do that, and I pay you on a 1099. Will you take, and now yeah, you're going to pay tax on that $2,000. If you just prevent the state of New Jersey from taking that $2,000, it's not income, it's not taxable. So what's it really worth, an in hourly income? Probably $2,500 to $3,000, so it's more like 1500 bucks an hour is the work that Jimmy did. $1,500 an hour is not bad labor exchange. It's probably better than any other thing that he'll ever do for money, ever. I shouldn't say that because I don't know Jimmy and he's a creative guy. Maybe he can come up with some more stuff, but it's not just property tax dispute. But definitely do that if you can because it's a it's a, it's a layup if, if they overstepped. And how often does the state overstep when it comes to real estate? Every time they think they'll get away with it. Every time they think they'll get away with it. So let's say that I'm a state tax assessor and I just jack up everybody in a particular neighborhood, let's say a 1,000 houses, to the maximum my state will let me get away with under the particulars of that year. I know that 70% are just going to pay the bill because it goes right in their mortgage payment. They'll cuss about it. They'll yell about it. They'll gripe and gross and gripe and whatever and say, my teachers are heroes. They need the money, even though most of the money is not for teachers. Right? And maybe 30% will dispute it. And even if those 30% all win, did I win? Sure I won, because I don't have to do anything except hit increase all, submit. That's how that gets done. So definitely fight back, fight the power every way you can. Next up, Zach says, Hey, Jack, i got a quick question for you in regard to your Excalibur dehydrator you recommend. I had the opportunity to borrow my neighbor's Cabela's Pro dehydrator to use this season. and really have enjoyed being able to preserve my garden produce or other fruits from the store. I'm planning on investing in my own dehydrator and was doing some research on the one you recommend, the Excalibur. However, I did discover the interior is lined with polycarbonate, which some people claim is unsafe for food use. Just wanted to get your take on this if you were aware of it or if it concerns you at all. Um, Let me just stop and restate something. Um, Some people claim it's unsafe. Some people claim everything's unsafe. Like, I don't know who some people are, but I wish they would go crawl up their own ass and die, is how I feel about this sometimes. So let's talk about this. So if you're dehydrating vegetables, you should be dehydrating somewhere in the range of around 95 to 105 degrees. I don't care what Excalibur or anybody else says about temperatures. Dehydration is not cooking. And if you go up too high in temperature, you're cooking. Dehydration is moving dry air across something to remove the water from it. So that at that temperature, the plastic that would probably be safe if you put it in the microwave is abundantly safe in a dehydrator. Next, the Cabela's one. Now, and if there's one I don't know about that the whole interior is stainless steel and all the racks are stainless steel, um, so be it. But like I looked up kind of their you know commercial grade as they market it, you know, their badass uh, dehydrators, you know, $200, 300 three hundred dollar dehydrators. And um, it wasn't polycarbonate. It was polypropylene. The trays are made out of polypropylene. Also, the way you phrased it was the Excalibur's interior is lined uh, with polycarbonate. That's not true. It's not lined with anything. The the interior is metal. Um, The trays are polycarb trays. And I believe the tray liners are silicon, which is the part the food actually touches. In any event, no, I'm not concerned. And... On the other side of that, if you look at the Cabela's, like their 10 tray deluxe dehydrator, it looks like a really well-made piece of equipment. And if you would just prefer it, I wouldn't fault it. I wouldn't fault it at all. Now, I haven't looked deeply into it, um, so I don't know its longevity as far as what people say about it. I do love that its thermostat will adjust down to 80 degrees. I love that. Because, again, my personal preference is to dehydrate whatever I'm dehydrating at the lowest temperature that will effectively dehydrate it. I would rather take 12 hours to dehydrate something at 80 degrees than 6 hours to dehydrate something at 125 degrees. Assuming it is something that you can dehydrate without having to worry about that, and if it's not, it shouldn't be in a dehydrator. Um, That includes, like, jerkies and stuff like that. These feel like dehydrate your jerky at 150 degrees. Okay, then you've made cooked crispy beef at low temperature. You haven't made jerky. Jerky's dehydrated meat, right? Warm, dry, continuous, moving air that is encouraged to fully dehydrate through the use of salt and other flavorings. That's jerky. So I will always use the lowest setting. My Excalibur's lowest setting, if I remember right, is 95. And so what's keeping me from getting one of these Cabela's dehydrators is I don't need to spend $250 for something that I already have. However, if I was considering this purchase today, and I'm not, and I haven't really deeply, I would probably do some research into how happy owners of the Cabela's dehydrator are. Because being able to go that low in temperature really appeals to me. This is what I know about Excalibur, though. There's not a lot that can go wrong. And if the fan goes bad, you can buy a new one, and it takes about five minutes of work and a Phillips screwdriver to replace it. And almost everything that can break in an Excalibur is something that, the first of all, the only way you're going to get hurt replacing it is if you leave it plugged in while you do it, and in that case, I question whether you're going to be around long enough to need to replace it, you'll probably find another way to off yourself and make tar- Charles Darwin proud in the interim anyway. So It's something almost anybody can do, and it's, safe. it's a safe job to do. It's not that hard, and I know you can get the parts. That gives me a lot of confidence in recommending Excalibur because I know that Five years from now, if your motor does, you know, have an MTBF failure and it, it it dies, that for very little money you can replace it. I don't know that that's the case with Cabela's, and I'm going to tell you my problem with Cabela's and kind of their deluxe commercial level product line. They don't make anything, and they have no loyalty to anybody on on the supplier side at a point in time where it becomes beneficial for Cabela's because they can provide a better product or make more money on an equal product. I'm not saying it's not they always make good product, okay? Just understand what I'm saying. If they're using supplier Joe, and Joe is having a little bit of quality issue, instead of working with Joe, if Frank can provide them a product they think is better that they can make more money on, they just change the product they put a label on. They say to Frank, hey, can you slot the Cabela's logo on that? Yeah, we'll take we'll take 500,000 of them next year. Let's go. That's good. It's also bad if you end up needing support for the older product or parts for the older product. Case in point, I've recommended the Cabela's Dehydrator, not Dehydrator, the Cabela's Vacuum Sealer for years. Mine has shit the bed. The, they have a commercial uh, vacuum sealer now. It's made by a completely different company. There's no support to fix what's wrong with my vacuum sealer that I spent $300 on. Now, I have used that thing exhaustingly for seven years. It is reasonable for a product, even a good one, to break after seven years of exhaustive use. Would I, if they were still carrying it, would I be able to get a replacement component for it? Maybe. I'm not even sure I can't yet, because there was an underlying vendor, and I can do some research. But I know from decades with Excalibur, if it breaks, I can get a replacement part. And that is hard to beat. So, again, I'm not putting Cabela's down. I mean, like, their carnivore grinders are great and all, but... It's only a matter of time that any product with the Cabela's label on it will be upgraded to a new product. And because it's a private label arrangement, if you can't find the underlying vendor, support, etc., will probably not be available to you. And that's, again, it's not a reason not to. It's just something to consider when making a choice on something like a dehydrator, which you'll probably never use your dehydrator as much as I've used a vacuum sewer. I can confidently say that. Like, you can only dehydrate so much shit every year before you're like, okay, I've done enough for now. Which means a a dehydrator can be a 20-year purchase. And if the one thing that can go wrong and it can be replaced for 25 bucks, then there's no reason it can't be something you give your kids someday because you decide you don't want to use it anymore. Not because it broke, right? Uh, Let's take one more and we'll wrap up. Uh, UBI. Universal basic income, for those not familiar with it. The, oh, no, actually, we got one, two more. Um, let's talk about building a new home. So Luke says, my original email may have been too worried, as yes, it was, but I'm wondering how the coming recession and housing market crash would affect the cost of constructing a new house. Is this a bad time to build, or is this a time to take advantage of it? Thanks, Luke. Uh, Luke, maybe. It depends. So here's the issue with building versus buying an existing home. There's no doubt that at some point in the not-so-distant future, you're going to see real estate nationwide in a major correction. As I keep saying, though, what's bad for one market can be good for another. There's going to be a lot of migration, and while I don't see like any one individual place really capitalizing on all of the migration, a little bit will be spread out across a lot of rural midwestern you know small town america and a lot of it will be just just outside of the suburbs of these big cities so what i mean by that is if you think of a town like you know dallas is a bad example we have too many cities too much metropolis like like dallas area is just massive people that haven't been here can't understand it let's think about something more like oh, philadelphia pennsylvania would be a great example there are suburbs of Philadelphia, for people that work in Philadelphia, that are extremely expensive. There's a point as you move out from that band, and that's really more of like over by the river and over to the east. Like south of it's not so much. You you die if you go too far in the wrong direction there. Um, But as you move just past what the comfortable commute into the city is, so let's say an hour and a half instead of an hour, for instance, The property cost drops. A lot of people, the initial movers, will migrate out into that band. That band will soon then come up in price as the inner core of the city decays, right? like rotting from the inside out of an apple. Like the core begins to rot and it starts spreading. And then so the people that have to jump and move now have to go further out. So the ones that aren't going to go, you know, back to upstate New York from the Philly area because that's where their family is, they kind of want to sort of stay in the same area around their friends or whatever, they're going to go just far enough to get out of that high-priced area. So that, and that's all going to take time to play out. Now, the, the thing hitting it completely elsewhere is even if you're in a market where generally the cost of a home has declined, right? Construction requires human labor. People only work for so little. And there are costs of construction of a home that even if real estate drops, the the construction costs are rather influid, right? They're inelastic. There's a certain amount of money that board lumber costs. There's a certain amount of money that drywall costs. And in booms, yeah, the price can go up, but there's a floor to those commodities where you just, like, if if I can't get at least this much, I just won't make it type of situation. And getting somebody skilled, you know, that can build a house to work for you as a carpenter, yeah, the, the, the rates can be depressed, but there's a floor to that too. So I think you might be in a situation where new construction may pull back a little bit in cost, But the people that are going to be doing construction are going to be people of means. Because if the real estate market's down, and inventories are high, and there's lots of houses available to be bought, and all buyers are settlers. That's my rule of real estate. That's how you sell a house. You make your house 1% better than everything in your area in that price range. Just 1% better. You'll sell that house as fast as can be done. Because they'll settle for you because you're one percent better. Okay? Then who builds a house in that market? Person says I refuse to settle? Person of means. Person that has money. So that means that while there might be a lot of builders kind of going under, the ones that aren't are still going to be able to get a reasonable price. So I think you might save some money building next year compared to building this year. But the offside of that is unless you have the money, you have the capital. Don't think lending's not going to tighten up. Don't think banks are going to be less, so now maybe I want to build a house, so I need to borrow $250,000 to build. And the bank's saying, hold on. Houses like that are only selling for two fifty. So when we factor in the money you're putting into it, we, we don't know if we can get our money back. So it might make it harder to get a construction loan. It all depends on how much money you have because there's a point when you're doing real property that if you have enough money to go into the property with, the bank will give you the rest. It's just it's just a, it's just a calculation. And maybe instead of a standard loan doing 20% down, a person's doing like 35% down, and the bank's like, yeah, we'll do it. They're, they're so vested. There's so much equity there that even if the market shits the bed another five points, we can still get our money out of this house especially brand-new house. So it, it, it all depends. So it depends on what your ability is, what your location is, etc. Because I'm telling you, as bad as I'm saying this is going to be with real estate, a lot of your it's, – it's the big cities, and it's the ones that are highly dependent on employers that are going to downsize. Those markets, like your rural markets that are – you know, highly agricultural right now still, small business oriented, et cetera. They don't have like this one university that if it collapses, the whole town's going to suck into a black hole. Um, they don't have like one big tech employer that's fixing to leave. Right. As long as you don't have that, this isn't going to be as bad for you as it is elsewhere. And there will be pockets within the country where it will almost be like nothing happened as far as real estate prices. And there'll be places where it will be so much worse than 2008, 2009, 2010, and you, you kind of have to work that out for yourself as to where you're at in that. But just don't don't get into a sense of false security with that either, because this is one of those big variables I can only give you so much on. I can tell you what's going to happen, exactly what it looks like. I can't tell you where I can tell you what it looks like for public education. I can I, I can give you numbers and and be fairly close. And unlike Real estate, public education is going to look a lot similar across the whole country. I think you're going to find, you're going to to be really surprised that the proportional number of parents who pull kids out is going to be fairly similar in Jacksonville, Florida, Dallas, Texas, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Seattle, Washington. Where the real estate market in those, those five places is going to be totally divergent and have almost no relationship to each other. So real quick, I wanted to hit a little bit on UBI. Um, Because what I realized last week when I talked about universal basic income, which is basically the concept, for if you've never heard this before, is everybody in America, rich and poor alike, once a month would get a check. That check has been talked about being as low as $500 a month. A lot of people came in about $800 a month. A lot of proponents of the system think it should be about $2,000 a month, $24,000 a year, that a person with a $24,000 a year income can live. Great, no, but you can live. There's people that work for twenty-four thousand a year right now, and somehow they survive. So if they can do it, you can do it. And yes, everybody gets it, but if you're really rich, it might be a wash. Sure, you'll get your two grand a month, your check, but by the time you look at the backside of how much more taxes you pay, it might just be processing the money through, right? In fact, it might actually be a net loss for you. In fact, it probably will be if you make significant income. But that's the premise, that no matter what, two grand. And what this would do, I, I want to, here's, okay, so I'm going to tell you how I would sell it, and I need you to understand that doesn't mean that I'm a fan of it or that I want it. I'm telling you honestly the things that you could say about it that would be good for the situation we're heading into. Number one, it's going to make employers have to compete harder for workers, so it's much easier for me to say, yeah, I don't need a job. And I know a lot of people are like, well, then they'll just lay around and do nothing. Okay, maybe, but most people won't. But what people will do is go, I'm not being treated like shit. So employers are going to have to make the work environment better. Now, it's going to be offset by a shitload of automation. Somebody just sent me a video of a little podunk town in the Midwest. I don't remember where it was, of a robot... Cleaning the floors at a grocery store. I mean, like, turn it on, walk away, and it's gonna clean, it it goes through the entire store and cleans the floors. That was somebody's job. That was some, and that's about as meat cleaning floors. Like, you know who cleans floors? Privates in the army clean floors. Well, they got nothing else for you to do. It's about as menial as a... It doesn't mean it's not worth anything, but as far as menial employment, not a lot of skill to be able to clean a floor up. Got a robot that does that. They have robots at stock shelves. You're not going to need a cashier. So a lot of these jobs that are like low-level jobs aren't going to exist, and that means that you're going to have to have something for these people to do, and a lot of them won't have anything to do. So by paying them to exist, and paying everybody to exist, you make the employers work harder for the people that are going to work. And you it, it should also be able to spur off a lot of, of entrepreneurism. Imagine if I said to you, I'll give you $2,000 a month. Go do what you want. How many of you would say, okay, well, I've always wanted to try X, Y, Z. Maybe I'll go try that, especially if you're like 22, 23 years old. And either you, you, you fail or succeed at that, but then you have that underlying cushion. Now, add to it thousands and tens of thousands and millions of people out of work in the next two to three years. And then add to it, hey, look what the government did. The government did these stimuluses. What if we did that all the time? And then all they have to do is figure out a way to sell the population on it being paid for somehow. And a lot of it can be paid for because money goes in cyclical patterns. When money goes out, money comes in. And if you're paying everybody $2,000 a month, most people are going to spend 99% of that money. And every time a dollar is spent, it generates tax revenue. Now, you might also see a coming cashless society. You get into a world where you basically have a national cryptocurrency. They won't call it that because they'll still say cryptocurrency is evil. But now you can tax every transaction. Well, you can't tax my, you know, cash transaction. Well, what if there's no cash? You can't tax my Bitcoin transaction. You can't tax my Ethereum transaction, my gold, my barter, whatever. You know what? They won't even care. I mean, they'll still occasionally make examples of people or whatever, but if they can, if they can get this done, what will, Again, you're back to what will most people do. The tax assessor knows if I raise the entire neighborhood's taxes, 2 or 3% are going to successfully appeal. I don't care about them. I care about all the extra money that I get to spend. That's all I care about. The danger of this again, though, is why you give your teenager stuff. That's why. That's, that's the danger. So when my son started getting older, we were pretty generous to what we gave him. Now, he always learned to work his life. He learned certain things he wanted he had to buy. He had to save his money. He had to spend his money. We taught him the value of money, the value of effort. But there were some things that were like, he wants that. We can afford it. Sure, he can have it. There was a reason behind it. When he wanted a vehicle, we didn't buy him his first car. It was actually a truck. We helped him buy his first vehicle. He had some money. We put some money in. We did everything that was necessary. We made sure he got a job, and that we could pay for his insurance and his gas. But we got him a vehicle. However, he was 16. You still live under my roof. It is your truck, sort of. State of Texas considers it my truck. I have access to the keys. I need this done. I'll take the keys to your truck. How will I get to work? You should have thought about that before. Now I've never had to. The fact that I could was enough leverage to get certain behaviors done. Now if I'm parenting a 16-year-old and guiding him through those last couple of years before he's on his own, that's a good thing. I don't think our nation should be parenting people from cradle to grave, which is what they want. As soon as you have UBI, you will have less than 10 years until it is it won't be it probably won't be 10 months for most people till they are fully dependent on it. And I want to be clear about that. Twenty-four grand in UBI, let's say. person makes $60,000 to make $84,000. You'd say, they're not fully dependent on UBI. Oh, but they will be. Oh, but they will be. How quick do you think that a bank will be to give you a loan in a world of UBI? Especially when that bank makes a deal with the government. So we're going to offer this credit for people to like go to school and try to rehab the education system you guys ruined. Um, we want the ability to directly tax their UBI if they miss payments. Done. Handshake. We're going to come up with this new program for people to buy a house. Basically, we're going to call it a new form of primary mortgage insurance. And we want to guarantee that if that person defaults on their mortgage, we get at least half their UBI to recoup until the mortgage can be settled. Handshake. Done. Why do you think that the financial institutions would go in on this? And then the government can say, well, you're not a good citizen. You're not a good citizen. You know UBI for you. Somebody does this, we take away their UBI. Somebody does that, we take away their UBI. Somebody fails to get their vaccination, we take away their UBI. Somebody chooses not to go to the government school system that we've pasted back together, we take away their UBI. You see what I mean? This is this is the... the ultimate shock collar for the American public but I think that it's going to get sold because the the situation will be such that we need a permanent bailout for society like all of the things we're doing right now this deal that Trump's trying to make or whatever to save the economy these are dress rehearsals for UBI they're dress rehearsals why bail out the cities when you can bail out the people it's much easier to sell them. And, and I want you to think about it like changing the way we elected our senators. That's how this amendment was sold to the people of the country. Same way. You should directly elect your senators. Why should your state le- legislature elect your senators? Th- shouldn't it be much more powerful that you get to elect your own senators? We look around, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. No, it doesn't. Is it easier to change... A state senator or a state member of your House of Representatives or a a a federal senator at the state level. You have to be kind of not all together there to not be able to answer that question. It's much easier. You can flip a state house seat by one motivated person walking around a couple neighborhoods and knocking on doors. they're, They're not that big. State senators are a little bit more difficult that sits at your state legislature. But the old days, up until 1913, when a lot of things changed, your state legislature appointed your senators to six-year terms. So changing your state senator was easy as changing your local representative. Just a few of those got changed, and that senator was getting shifted out on the next, and it also had, it was never used, but states had almost an unlimited right of recall. That while the people couldn't recall Senator so-and-so, if the state legislature really felt that this this guy was not doing the bidding of the state anymore, they could have recalled him and replaced him. And now recalling a senator is way, 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 way more complicated. And people say, well, the fact that it never happened, no, it never happened because it didn't need to. That's like the parent that's willing to spank their kid's ass that never does. But the fact that it was possible was always in the mind of the kid that I could get my ass spanked for this, right? And I, I'm not an advocate of hitting children. But I, I will admit certain things do have a, a impact, right? And the fact that you're willing to do something can be a deterrent without actually ever having to do it. And that's how that worked. Having a nuclear arsenal, if people that would attack you think, well, if I do, they might nuke me. They might never have to drop a single nuclear bomb or maybe two. In all of history, you may never have to drop another one. That's not an advocation of nuclear weapons either. It's just a statement of fact. Like we Again, facts do not have feelings. They just don't, folks. They really don't. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with another uh, episode of the show. Hope you guys enjoyed today. I know I enjoyed uh, being with you for about an hour and a half today. want to tell you, uh, as always, you can help support our show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz. Com. Today I'm bringing around a product that I, I, I really was glad to have found this year. Uh, these are bulkheads, which a bulkhead is something that lets you put a penetration in, in something that has liquid inside and, and bring liquid outside without having it leak. So, let lets you put a pipe, it lets you put a penetration in a tank. And so I did a lot with hydroponics this year, and I needed a lot of bulkheads for some of my projects and paying like $13 a bulkhead at Tractor Supply did not appeal to me. I found these these ones from Lifeguard Aquatics. And they're around 3 bucks to 4 bucks a piece, somewhere in that range. 5 bucks for like a 1.5 inch, three fifty nine for like a half inch. And I love them. I love them. When I first brought them around, I had found the threaded ones, which means you install a bulkhead and then you need like a male-to-female adapter that screws into the bulkhead for a pipe to stick into it. I soon then found that they actually have slip bulkheads. Meaning you just like if it's a half inch bulkhead, half inch pipe just sticks into both sides of it. And you can you can dry fit it or you can glue it. And I like those even better. So I have all the options for both the threaded and the slip available in the ride of today. These things are great. They're extremely affordable. They ship next day. I just ordered some new ones. I have one thing to add to this though. This is a weird thing happened. Um, They are like a plastic, like a plastic nylon, what have you. Um, They are not as rugged as the banjo bulkheads that I use on my more rugged needs. Those are the ones you get from Tractor Supply. They can melt. I had two trays that I took out of my vertical farm and I put them out in the sun to kind of bake some algae and stuff off them and I just left them for like two weeks. I went to start putting that back together yesterday and I'm reconfiguring it and doing some different things to it this time. And... um, The two bulkheads, one in each tray, I had to cut them off with a Sawzall. They melted in the heat of the Texas sun, and you can't put a pipe in them anymore. And I just didn't think it was worth trying to fix them for 3 bucks. So I backed the compression nut off, and I, I cut them. So if you're going to put these things anywhere in the sun, like in between maintenance or whatever, I had a third tray, and it had little pieces of pipe stuck into it with the PVC pipe. Well, the PVC pipe that was glued in there held it, so nothing happened to that. So you may want to leave pipe in them if they're sitting somewhere. An odd thing. Probably wouldn't happen to most people. But yeah, Texas Sun melted my bulkheads. But check them out again. They're made by a company called Lifeguard Aquatics. They're the most cost-effective bulkhead that I've found, especially with projects where are using lots of bulkheads. And in the write-up and in the video, I give you some other tips on them. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up today with Song of the Day. Uh, I'm sticking to picking my own music for a while. I love that John Adam does this. It's one less thing I have to do. But every once in a while, I want to just... Dabble in picking my own music. So this week, uh, one of the more underrated uh, people, groups, however you want to describe it, of all time to me is George Thorogood and the Destroyers. The song that almost everybody walking on the planet knows by George Thorogood and the Destroyers is not the one that I'm going to play for you today. Uh, The song that I'm going to play for you today is... Get a haircut and get a real job. Of course, the one everybody knows is Bad to the Bone. If you're not sure who he is, who George Thorogood is, Bad to the Bone is the song that you would... Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I love this song, Get a haircut and get a real job, because it is one of those songs that an entertainer is is spiking the football. Right? Um, It it actually, in in a lot of ways, is similar to... uh, The Toby Keith song, like, How Do You Like Me Now, in a way, except this wasn't from a different time and done in a different way. And, you know, his parents are always telling him, you need to get a haircut and get a real job like your big brother Bob, probably because Bob rhymes with job. And um, toward the end of the song, he says, like, I'm like six times as rich as my, uh, my big brother Bob, but he's got a haircut and he's got a real job. And uh, he's you know, talking about his success as a musician being far in excess of whatever he could have got walking the path that had been laid out for him. And as I've been saying, every day now on Facebook, I post one line from the song of the day earlier in the day so people can guess what it is and just kind of get an inkling of what's coming today. Um, the line I pulled out of this song that, that is one of the lines I really love about it. He says, I even tried that nine to five scene. I told myself that it was all a bad dream. And, you know, there are, I always say this when I talk about entrepreneurship with people. There's nothing wrong with being an employee. God bless you for it, because without employees, entrepreneurs wouldn't have anything to do. But when you have that entrepreneurial DNA, you have that entrepreneurial blood, you can always do more for yourself eventually, than a job can do for you. There's many paths. There's people like George, all he ever wanted to do was play music, and that's pretty much what he mostly did. There's people who come out of high school or come out of college, and they immediately go into the business world, and they, they get venture funding or something, and they, they crush it. And there's people like me. I've always had something entrepreneurial going, but for almost 20 years, I worked in the corporate world. You know, And then 12 years ago, I walked away. And took everything that that world gave me and did my own thing with it. And all of those paths are okay. But in the end, I I find it interesting that it's always the people that think they're helping that try to dissuade dreamers from pursuing their dreams. You know, because the parent that says, you know, it's tough to make it in the music business, but somebody does it. Somebody does it. And that's the thing. Almost every place that somebody says, I'm going to go try to make it Yeah, a lot of people watch out, a lot of people don't make it, a lot of people fail. But everybody that made it was willing to try. Everybody that was that made it was willing to either leverage the ninety five scene until they could walk away or just risk it without it or only use it as much as they needed to but one way or another they were willing to step out they were willing to jump they were willing to get to a point where they said I'm going to try this I'm going to do this and inevitably the people who are most admired are always the ones that did that and then we turn around and tell a young person who has a dream hey, you know, don't dream too big don't dream too much now, I don't think there's anything wrong with getting an education and having a plan B. But, man, the next time you try to talk to some talk somebody out of a plan A that involves a little bit of dreaming and a little bit of reach, just remember, they might actually be able to accomplish it. And once they do, it might be better if they looked back and saw you as a cheerleader than somebody that tried to hold them back. With that, has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. I was a rebel from the day I left school Grew my hair long and
0: broke all the rules I'd sit and listen to my records all day With big ambitions of when I could play My parents taught me what life was about So I grew up the type they warned me about They said my friends were just an unruly vibe, And I should do Get a haircut and get a real job. Get a haircut and get a real job. Clean your act up and don't be a slob. Get it together like your big brother five. Why don't you get a haircut and get a real job. I even tried that nine to five scene. I told myself that it's This chick, she was my number one. than my big brother Bob. He's got a haircut. He's got a real job. Get a haircut and get a real job. Clean your act up and don't be a sly. Get it together like your big brother Bob.